uh, a little a little review. There are seven points uh, for training the heart to be compassionate. And uh, we began uh, several days ago with the first point, which is, uh, in my version, resolve to begin. Motivation. Remember, we were talking about the four reflections. And we spent a day uh, working with them. The preciousness of this human life, the absolute certainty of death, the indelibility of all our actions, the inescapability of suffering. When you take the time to really think about these things seriously, it does dawn on you that there is nothing more important than your spiritual life, your ethical life, the depth of your life. Nothing is more important than this. That a life of just going along, trying to enjoy yourself the best you can and avoiding trouble, getting security, this could not possibly be enough for you. And, and you realize that spiritual life isn't just a matter of meditation and having different spiritual thoughts and feelings. It's actually mostly about relationships, starting with the relationship that you have to yourself and moving out from there. That spiritual practice is really about our connection to everything in our lives, especially others. Think about this, you know, all of the religions that we all know about, all of the ideologies that aren't even religions, disagree on almost everything about what life is and how life should be lived. But the one thing that they all agree on is love and compassion. Love and compassion is definitely the centerpiece of a spiritual life. But, in order to love and connect to others deeply, you cannot avoid facing pain. Because if you just love somebody when everything is pleasant and nice and going along well, but then as soon as there's trouble, you stop loving them, well, nobody would really take this seriously as anything more than a pleasant infatuation. It couldn't be love. Because love requires some courage, some pain, because there's going to be trouble sometimes in any life. So there is no way to actually love and avoid pain and suffering. One of my jokes, which is a very true joke, like all good jokes, I say to people, you know, uh, you want to learn about suffering? I'll, I'll tell you how it's easy. Get married and have children. <laughs> then I can pretty much guarantee that you'll become quite expert on suffering. That's the way to learn. Everybody wants to love. Everybody thinks it's the most wonderful thing to be in love and to love and be loved. But we tend to forget the part about how that's going to bring suffering. So this means that compassion always goes along with love. Because as we've been saying, compassion is the capacity to receive the pain of another. Not to avoid it, deny it, try to fix it, paper it over, it, just receive it. And this is what we need from one another, isn't it? This is what we want from one another. We want to be seen, to be heard. We want to know that our life, including our pain, can be freely received by another person whose eyes are open, and that it's okay. That's what we all need, I think.
And then, as we've been practicing and learning, you can't be compassionate with others if you're not first compassionate with yourself. And the two always have to go together. Because actually, they are not two different things. I am I, but it's odd that you are also I, right? I am you to your I. Did you ever notice that? To me, this is one of the most strange things that I ever, ever thought of, that I ever experienced. We all say I, the same word, when we're speaking of ourselves. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> and we are all you to one another. So our language already knows what our heart doesn't yet understand. That me and you are simply changeable positions. They don't refer to actual people. They're just changeable temporary positions. In fact, in linguistics, they call these words shifters. That's actually what they call them. Because they're shifting position from person to person all the time. So we are all temporarily distinct from one another. But at a deeper level, at a more real level, at the level of awareness itself that we've been practicing every day, at that level, body, breath, awareness, we actually are sharing one life together. One life that's passing through all of us, moving through us our whole life. Beautiful and bright, the truest and most real part of our lives. So, compassion is not a big stretch, it's not a big thing. It's the most natural impulse of the human heart. If I am walking down the path and I step on a nail and the nail goes through my shoe into my foot, my brain is going to automatically tell my hand to pull the nail out and my hand is going to immediately do this without debate, without questioning. Because foot and hand and brain are just different expressions of one body. There is no big discussion about whether the hand has something more important to deal with at that moment than the thorn in the foot. <laughs> or the brain is at that moment thinking about universal compassion and can't be bothered <laughs> with the thorn in the foot. Doesn't say, why didn't the foot pay more attention? Look where it was going. I'm not going to do anything for that foot? Or how come the eye didn't tell the brain to mention to the foot that there was a dangerous nail <laughs> right in the path? You're laughing because it's completely ridiculous. The whole idea of such a discussion is ridiculous because nothing could be more obvious, more natural, than that the body all parts of the body takes care of the body. That's the way the body is. The body is an organism. And it functions that way. And compassion is just the same. Naturally, normally, easily, automatically. We all know to take care of one another. Because we are each other's hands and feet and eyes and brain. There's a famous story in Zen. Uh, Yunyan asks his Dharma brother, Dawu, how come the Bodhisattva of compassion has so many hands and eyes? And Dawu says, it's just like reaching back for your pillow in the dark. 
That's what compassion is like. It's just as simple and as natural as in the night, you know, when you're sleeping and your pillow needs adjusting. You just reach back and do it. It's dark. You don't even know what you're doing, but you do it. Compassion is that simple and that natural. It was wonderful uh, to hear Mary Grace's talk last night. Uh, a blessing that she could make it and that she's here now. Even though I think you're still not feeling 100%. Still, uh, last night your voice was really strong and clear as you reminded us of Buddha's basic teaching of suffering, end of suffering. And you said, and, and it was true, and it was true last night and true today and always true. Such a simple teaching, so clear. But when I was listening to you, I heard something that I never really noticed before. Usually, uh, with the story of the four heavenly messengers, we emphasize that Buddha realized that he had to get serious about his life because of the inescapability of sickness, old age, and death. But last night, I noticed that it was the sickness, old age, and death of others that so moved the Buddha. He saw that the suffering of others was not just the suffering of others. He really felt that the suffering of others was his own suffering. He was compelled to take the suffering of others absolutely personally, as his own, and to totally change his life and do something about it. So from the very beginning, Buddha was practicing for and with others. From the very beginning, Buddha knew that self and others are not two distinct things. And in the Zen version of the Buddha's awakening story, at the moment of the Buddha's awakening, he gets all excited and he exclaims, how wonderful, how wonderful, in this moment, I and all beings are awakened. My suffering and the suffering of all beings in this moment comes to an end. So, this is the second point that we've been studying Training in compassion. First, resolve to begin. Second, train in compassion. Absolute compassion, relative compassion. Absolute compassion is the practice of resting in awareness itself, returning to the breath, returning to the present moment, returning to the bottom line feeling of simply being alive. Just that. Returning to the breath and just feeling how your life is held in safety and love in the wide space of endless awareness. And then relative compassion, based on the absolute compassion, is the practice of being willing to take in the suffering, to actually feel it, and to care. To be willing for your heart to be broken. To be willing to go out of your way to work hard on behalf of others. To give of yourself, to practice kindness, to be really interested in and moved by others, and to meet everyone, always taking into account the suffering that we share as human beings. So that's what we've been practicing with so far. I thought it would be good at this point to kind of remind us of all these things. I feel like we're all doing a great job in this retreat, but I also feel like probably none of us have come to the end of these practices. I think we have a little ways to go. Uh, maybe the rest of the retreat, possibly even beyond that. So I'm saying that because you, know, you should feel free in the retreat to continue with any of the things that we've been working with. 
even if we move on, you know, and you're still moved by and interested in practicing something that's useful to you, you should stay with it. Because uh, this is not a course, you know, where we're trying to get through the material. Like sometimes, you know, when you're in college, they say, well, we have to get through the material in so many weeks. It's not like that. In, in practice, all you need is one point. One point is enough. One practice is enough. Still, we, today, we're taking up the third point. The third point of the seven points is transform bad circumstances into the path. That's the third point. So this has happened a million times. Somebody begins to practice, and they seem really intent on it, and I see them a lot. You know, they come to uh, retreats, they come to seminars, they come to sittings. I can see, you know, they're really interested and motivated. Then all of a sudden, I don't see them anymore. Time goes by, maybe a long time, then they come back, I see them again. And I say, where have you been? You know, we missed you. What's, where, what's, how, how come you haven't been around? And then they say, well, some really hard things came up in my life. It was really difficult. It took all my time and energy. I had nothing left for practice. I just stopped practicing. But this is exactly the backwards way to look at it, right? It's completely upside down. Practice isn't for the good times, when things are pretty peaceful and everything's more or less under control. Practice is not a recreational activity. Practice is a whole life. It's for the good times as well as, and especially for the bad times. When things are really tough, that's when it's essential that you practice. There's a saying in Zen, we used to say it at the, in the monastery, at a ceremony once that we had it once a week every five days. Practice as if your head or your hair is on fire. Practice as if your hair is on fire. In other words, with great urgency, especially when you're in dire straits. When I was young, I had times of tremendous anguish. And during those times, I practiced a lot. It wasn't easy. In fact, uh, it was painful to practice. In a way, practicing when my hair was on fire, maybe in a way, made things more difficult. In some ways, maybe it made my pain seem worse. But I have no doubt that it was really good for me to practice then. It helped me to get through that hard time, and it really strengthened my life. I think this is true for everybody. So when you're having a hard time and you don't have time to practice, remind yourself that is the time when it really matters to practice, even though maybe it's not so easy. So there is a another Zen saying, the whole world is upside down. In other words, the way the world looks from an ordinary point of view is pretty much the opposite of the way the world actually is, at least the way the Zen masters of old saw the world. And there's a story that illustrates this. This is from uh, the book. Once upon a time, uh, there was a Zen master called Bird's Nest Roshi. The reason he was called that is because he meditated in an eagle's nest at the top of a tree. This was a dangerous thing to do. You know, one false move, one gust of wind, one moment of falling asleep, and he was finished. So uh, he did this persistently over time, and he became quite well-known for this. People would visit him and talk to him while he was sitting up there in his bird's nest. One person who came to visit him was Sushir, the famous uh, poet of the uh, Tang dynasty, who, uh, Song dynasty, who was also a 
government official working in the world, and he stood on the ground and looked up at the bird's nest, Roshi, and said, why in the world would you do this? This is so dangerous. And the bird's nest, Roshi, said, you think this is dangerous? What you're doing is way more dangerous. Living normally in the world, ignoring death, impermanence, and loss and suffering as we all routinely do, as if this were a normal and reasonable and safe way to live, is actually much more dangerous than going out on a limb to meditate. As we've been saying, uh, while trying to avoid difficulty may be natural and understandable, that's what we all do, the fact of the matter is it doesn't work. We think it makes sense to protect ourselves from pain, but the self-protection ends up causing way more pain. We think we should be holding on to what we have, but a lot of times the very holding on causes us to lose what we have. We are attached to what we like and we try to avoid what we don't like, but the attractive object never stays the same. And it turns out you can never avoid the unwanted object. So even though it's counterintuitive, it really is true that avoiding life's difficulties is not the path of least resistance. It actually is a dangerous way to live. When your eyes are open, you see that. If you want to have a safe and happy life in good times and in bad times, you just have to get used to the idea that facing misfortune squarely is better than trying to escape from it. Now this can sound like, you know, a grim path of, you know, facing one difficulty after another, but it isn't. It's just the smoothest possible approach to happiness. We've been practicing sending and receiving, and I, and I hope that in that practice all of you have found some joy in it. You act, there's actually some joy in it. There's actually a lot of beauty in it. When you're willing to breathe in difficulty and transform it into healing, you feel some joy, and it's much better than trying to hold off the difficulty when it can't be held off. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, when we can prevent difficult things, we don't do that. Of course we do. When we can prevent difficult things, when we can fix something that's broken, we just roll up our sleeves and do that. So, yeah, we pay our taxes and have home insurance and car insurance. We drive safely, you know, we do maintenance, take care of things, including our body, our mind, our heart. So, turning difficulties into the path doesn't say we don't do that. Instead, it's addressing the underlying attitude of anxiety, fear, and narrow-mindedness that is so pervasive in our lives we don't even notice it's there. It takes those attitudes and it confronts them and opens them up. So this third point of transforming bad circumstances into the path is associated with the practice of patience. Patience is my all-time favorite spiritual quality. There's a list of qualities in Mahayana Buddhism, the six paramitas, and qual six qualities to be developed by the practitioner, and one of them is patience. Patience is the capacity to welcome difficulty when it comes, with a spirit of strength, endurance, forbearance, and dignity, rather than fear, anxiety, avoidance. Nobody likes to be oppressed, in pain, defeated. Yet, if we can endure with patience, 
defeat, oppression, pain. If we can bear it with strength, without whining, we are ennobled by that. The very thing that hurts us, ennobles us when we can practice patience with it and meet it with strength. Still, uh, you know, in our world, patience is not very sexy. You know, people don't really prize that quality that much. When we come to spiritual practice, you know, we're not coming so that we can develop more patience. We want to develop, you know, love, compassion, insight, enlightenment, not patience, though. But when tough times come, and our love frays into annoyance, our compassion is overwhelmed by our fear, and our brilliant Dharma insight evaporates instantly into thin air, patience looks good. (laughs) Patience makes sense. So that's why I love patience. I think it's the best of all spiritual qualities, the most serviceable, the most reliable. Without patience, without this ability to face difficulty with courage, every other spiritual quality is shaky. It's on shaky ground. It lasts as long as things go well. So the practice of patience is very simple. When something tough arises, you notice all the ways that you try to avoid it. Just to notice all the ways that you try to avoid it. That is the practice of patience. You notice the things you think, the things you say, the things you do, And you notice all of this is in the service of somehow getting around this difficulty. We're so clever and sneaky. We have the most devious ways of tricking ourselves and justifying ourselves. And when you practice patience, you just notice the whole thing. You see how it works. You're just present with your mind and body and all the things you're foolishly doing. And instead of buying it all, you just notice it. You take a breath, you return to awareness of the body, and you don't let yourself react and flail around like you normally would do. You see the impulse to do that, it's very clear, but patiently you just observe that impulse without acting on it. You pay attention to the body. You pay attention to the mind. You pay attention to the breath. And when possible, you give yourself some good teachings about the virtue of being with, rather than trying to run away from, this anguish that you are feeling in that moment. That's the practice of patience. So it occurs to me that Maybe I haven't uh, said enough, this very subtle point about all these practices. Uh, When we say practice sending and receiving, when we say, you know, breathe in suffering, breathe out relief, it sounds like we're saying that you're actually supposed to do this. And that if you're not doing this, you're failing. Or if we say, you know, pay attention to the breath and the body, and it makes it sound like you're supposed to really do that, and if you're not doing that, it seems like you're not doing the practice. Or like we've been practicing today, repeat the word gratitude, practice gratitude. So maybe if you didn't feel grateful today, you think, oh, I blew it. You know, I wasn't really doing the practice. I wasn't feeling grateful. I mostly forgot about it. You flunked the course. But no, the point is not to actually do these things. The point is to practice doing these things, which means 
to come back over and over again to the effort to do them. And even though you get distracted a million times, you have a commitment to keep coming back to the effort to do these things. And then simply see what happens. Very often, most of the time, what happens is pretty much nothing. Most of the time, nothing happens. Maybe today you did spend a lot of time saying grateful, grateful on all the exhales that you could remember. Most of the time you did it, maybe, and you didn't feel anything, maybe. Or maybe when you said grateful, your mind right away went to something terrible you know, that happened to you that you were absolutely not grateful for. Or maybe, like Molly was saying, you completely forgot, you know, about the practice of, what was it now? Was it forgiveness? Was it, what was it? <laughs> totally forgot about it. That's all okay. That's the way it should be. That's how human beings are. You have a human mind. Congratulations. What do you do then? You practice patience. You see what's happening or not happening. And you keep on with the practice. So the practice of gratefulness isn't as much about feeling a certain emotion as it is about really understanding who you are and what your life really is. It's actually a very, very profound practice. And I was trying to say this um, this morning when I was giving the instructions, but I I say more here in, in the book about it. So, uh, our grandson, we have now three grandchildren. And our, our first grandchild was a, was a grandson, and we were all excited about that, as you could imagine, and we went to see him. He was about six weeks old when we first met him. And he was a mess. He couldn't do anything. <laughs> Did I say six months old? I mean six weeks. Six weeks old. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't even hold up his head, (laughs) much less feed himself. If he was in dire straits, he couldn't ask for help. If all of a sudden he found his hand in his mouth, as often happened, and he started chewing on his hand, (laughs) he didn't know what was going on. (laughs) What was this thing in my mouth? I have no idea. And if he was chewing on his hand, and he liked chewing on his hand, and he found it really agreeable, but then his hand fell out of his mouth, he had no idea how to get it back in. In fact, he had no idea about anything in this whole world. Even though he clearly had likes and dislikes. He had strong likes and dislikes, but he was 100% powerless to do anything about them. All he could do is experience the world as it changed moment by moment, and often it did not change to his advantage. He was completely dependent on his mother's care and constant attention. She fed him, she cuddled him, she tried to understand and anticipate his needs, she took care of absolutely everything, even down to his peeing and his pooping, if you could imagine that. (laughs) Well, you were once in exactly that situation, precisely that situation, not long ago. Somebody must have cared for you in exactly this way. Somebody or somebody's. Everybody sitting in this room at one time had 100% total care and attention from one or more other human beings. If not, you would not be here now. So, 
there's a start on the practice of gratitude. But our dependence on other people uh, does not end there. We think we grew up and we became independent. Now we can all hold up our heads. We can cook dinner. We can wipe our own butts. We live far away from our mother and father. We don't need them to take care of us anymore. We are autonomous individuals. We don't really need necessarily other people to support our lives. Really? Did you grow the food that we had to eat today? The food that maintains your life every single day? Did you till the soil, milk the cow, gather the eggs and kill the chicken? Did you, did you make your own car? Or commuter train that takes you to work? Did you make the road the car drives on? Did you extract the fuel that runs the car? How about your clothes? Do you sew your own clothes? People used to do that. Maybe all of you do that too, but probably not. Did you also build your house and mill the lumber? I mean, really, how do you live every single day? You need others every single moment of your life. It's thanks to others and their presence and their efforts that we all have the things that we need to continue our lives every day. Not to mention friendship, love, and meaningfulness. Without others, you know, you have nothing. So then, Somebody comes along and says, well, yeah, but that's really an exaggeration because I make a lot of money and I pay for all this stuff. I mean, I didn't do it myself, but I pay for it and I earn the money myself. So all these people aren't taking care of me. It's my money that's taking care of me, even the highways and the commuter trains because I pay taxes. Where do you think that the money comes from? I pay for that. People say that. But let's suppose that you have a gigantic stack of money. You know, this whole room full of money in $1,000 bill denominations. However, there is no other human being in the world but you. The only thing that exists is you and this gigantic stack of money. So now you have a lot of money, but how are you going to survive? Can you eat the money? Can you hollow out a little fort in it and live in there? <laughs> Did you ever think of this? The only reason that money has any value is that other people exist. If other people don't exist, money has no value. Money makes no sense without others. Its value exists because others exist. But our dependence on others runs even deeper than that. Where does the person we take ourselves to be come from in the first place? Apart from our parents' genes and their support and care and society and all it produces for us, there's the whole network of conditions and circumstances that intimately makes us what we are. Nothing could be more personal and more our own and more not dependent on others, we think, than our very thoughts and our feelings, right? But where do our thoughts and feelings come from? Without words to think with, we don't think. We don't have anything like the sense of self as we understand it. And we don't have the emotions and feelings that are shaped and defined by our words. So did you invent the English language? No. It's the product of untold numbers of speakers over untold numbers of generations. 
without the myriad circumstances that provided us the opportunities for education, for speech, for knowledge, for work, we wouldn't be the person that we think we are. Without all the people in our lives whom we know and who know us and love us and create complications for us and piss us off every day, we would have nothing to think about without all them. We would be very bored. And worse than bored. It is literally and unimaginable to think of oneself without others. Without others, consciousness would be shattered by loneliness. So it is literally the case that there could not be what we call a person without other people. There is no such thing as a person, as if it were a separate autonomous thing. It doesn't exist. There are only shifters, positions of persons popping up here and there, co-creating one another over the long history of humanity. The idea of an independent, isolated, atomized, lonely person is absolutely impossible, even though we think it, it's possible. And this is not just the way we need each other practically. I'm talking about our inmost sense of human identity. Consciousness itself cannot be independent of others. I was just making prostrations, and I, and I realized I'm pretty sure that this beautiful lady to my left is Prajna Paramita, the Mahayana Buddhist deity of emptiness. And that's what emptiness means in Buddhist thought. Non-self, emptiness. That's what, that's what it means. It means there's no such thing as an isolated individual. We can say such a thing, we might think there is such a thing. Many of our thoughts and motivations seem to be based on this idea, which is why we're suffering so much. But it's not a true idea. Literally every thought in our minds, every emotion that we feel, every word that comes out of our mouth, every material sustenance that we need to get through the day comes through the kindness of and the interaction with others. And not only other people, but non-humans too. The whole of the earth, the soil, the sky, the trees, the air we breathe, the water we drink. We're more than dependent on all of that. We are all of that. And all of that is us. And this is not a theory or a poetic reflection. It's simply the bald fact of the matter. And that's really the basis of the practice we've been doing all day today. That's why we're grateful. Because we are everything and everything is us. We can't do without one another. Being is gratefulness. Living is gratefulness. So we're training in, in the actual fact of who we are. Cultivating every day this sense of gratefulness which is the happiest of all attitudes. You cannot feel gratitude and unhappiness in the same moment. If you feel grateful, you feel happy. If you feel grateful for what is possible for you in this moment, no matter what your challenges are, grateful first that you're alive at all, grateful that you can think, you can feel, you can stand up, you can sit down, you can walk, you can talk. These are miracles. The other day, our third grandchild, a little girl, stood up. And we saw the photo immediately after she stood up, you know, even though our granddaughter lives very far away. We saw the photo. And everybody was so excited. She stood up. Yes, it's a miracle to stand up. And you do it all the time. You can stand, you can sit, you can walk, you can think. You're brilliant. It's amazing. So much to be grateful for. And, and you really appreciate it when you have a time 
when you can't stand up or walk or sit, then you really think, whoa, it's really great to be able to walk and sit and stand and think. So gratefulness is a profound, deep thought. And it's wonderful and beautiful and makes you happy. In some contrast to you know, our practice yesterday where we were breathing in suffering. So we're not forgetting about that. And we're not practicing gratefulness. We didn't conspire and say, oh my God, we probably drove them crazy yesterday making them breathe in suffering. We better give them a practice of gratitude today for relief. No, no, that's not the idea at all. The deeper your gratitude practice goes, the more you stay with it, the more you see that in the end, we are grateful for everything, even the suffering, even the things we hate and don't like and wish we could get rid of and maybe are here at the retreat to try to improve even those things we're grateful for. I think this came up in our discussion this afternoon. And this is the real power of gratitude practice. It comes under the category of turn under the third point. It's one of the, it's one of the practices under the third point. Turn difficulties into the path. One of the practices under that third point is be grateful for everything and everyone. This is the Buddha's most profound teaching, I think. That life and death is one phenomenon. Suffering and joy is one phenomenon. As soon as life arises, there's tremendous beauty. And in this same moment, trouble. There's going to be trouble. Trouble is already beauty, and the beauty is already the trouble. There are things that happen in our lives and the lives of others that are absolutely terrible. And only a fool would say, oh, I'm so grateful for my chronic pain. Oh, I'm so grateful for my cancer. Oh, I'm so grateful for that car accident. Oh, I'm so grateful for that horrible loss of my child. Nobody says that or feels that. And if they did, we would wonder about them, right? And yet, and yet, in the end, after much effort, and many, many tears, and lots of sleepless nights, maybe stretching into months and years, we do come to accept that this terrible thing really did happen, and that now it's part of our lives, and it's what we now need and must digest in order to go forward. This that happened broke our heart. It sliced our hearts wide open. We didn't want that. We tried to prevent it. It was really, really hard. But in the end, it was a good thing because of our pain. We have way more love, way more tenderness, Because of our pain, we really understand other people. We're really sympathetic to them. Because of our pain, our lives are so much richer. So yes, I think after a lot of trials and tribulations, we are grateful, truly and really grateful. It's a lot of work. But there is no other way, right? There is no other way. We can be broken by what happens to us forever and ever. And, and the only way that we're not broken 
is when we finally come to the place where we can say, yes, I, I would never, even now I would never choose such a thing, but finally, yes, I'm grateful. So as we were saying at the end of our afternoon discussion, don't we want at the end of our life to be able to say to ourselves, maybe we don't say it to anybody else, but to our no, for ourselves, yes, this is my life, and I'm grateful for all of it. I made a lot of mistakes. Also, bad things were done to me. I suffered a lot. Maybe I also made others suffer. But that's what happened. That's the way it was. And I healed my wounds. And because of all these things that happened to me, I was able to finally love. It took a long time, but that made it even more beautiful that it took so long and that it was so hard. And now it's enough. I can let go. So that whole past, it was beautiful. It was hard. It was beautiful. This moment is beautiful. In the future, whatever it will bring is also beautiful. Wouldn't we want all of us to, at the end, honestly and truly be able to feel that way, even if we didn't think of it in just those terms, to be able to feel that way, then we could be all right. So let's uh, take two or three minutes to practice again gratefulness, gratitude, just for a few minutes, and I'll ring the bell for the walking period. And now I don't think we even need the word gratitude. We don't even need the word, it's extra. We just need to feel our life, feel our breath, and just embrace whatever comes into our mind or body or heart in this moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.